Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Bradley Gerard. How are you doing, Bradley? Very good, thanks, John. Good week. It's been a good week, yeah. It's been still fairly busy on results. Not quite as chaotic as recent weeks, but... Yeah, yeah. didn't feel like that at 7 o'clock yesterday evening, but there you go. Uh, Ian Smith, how are you doing, Ian? Not too bad, John. How are you doing? All right. Well, I was off a bit last week. Uh, so you, was you I. All, oh, you weren't, yeah, you weren't here either. So you were here. I was here. And so you would have done the podcast with... With Mark. Robbo, yes. Yeah. yeah. All right, was it? Fine, yeah. He was, he, was, he was on good form. Good, good. Well, I'm back. Feeling wonderful. Feeling refreshed. Feeling... A little bit older. And I'm back with a beard. Yeah. yeah I'm going to shave mine off. It's there. the talk of the office. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I heard after Bradley joined the fraternity, I felt I was compelled to. It's some kind of icy dress code. Yeah, Graham, where's yours? I'm trying. <laughs> I know you can go out a bit, Graham. I saw it when you were off for a bit. We met up at the cricket one, one That's day. That's true. So yeah. It was a good beard, too. Yeah, a couple of weeks. Anyway. Let's, uh, let's stop talking about beers. Let's talk about uh, the magazine, because that's what we're here for. So it's been a very busy week, not necessarily in results terms. I mean, still quite busy. Quite a few results. Some of the AIM guys coming through and retailers coming through as well at this time of the year, as, as we kind of uh, said before. Um, but lots of kind of really quite interesting features in this week's magazine. It's kind of caught us by surprise. So I went out for some beers a couple of weeks back with the guys at Share pad ionic information they're, they're an information provider that i'm sure a number of our readers will use to do their sort of data crunching and portfolio management and we kind of had this idea let's let's kind of do some analysis in the magazines so we've got a really long feature which is written by their in-house analyst phil oakley uh, looking at house builders and how you actually go about analyzing them and i think I mean, it's, it's really quite interesting good number crunching good educational uh, stuff there and we're going to carry that on for a few weeks and what what we'll be doing next week is Jonas will respond so so in fact each sector writer in this case Jonas will respond to what Phil's written in the previous week so it's, it's going to work out quite nicely and it's a really a really big topic of the moment isn't mm. it? you know looking what, at house pay orders and uh, looking at the valuations you know how are they responding to the referendum where's the the price inflation with the builders yeah absolutely and where house, house price is going and, 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 and in fact what Jonas said to me this morning was what he's going to do is is look at some of the kind of more qualitative uh, insights that you could perhaps put around the the quantitative stuff that Phil's done here. So th- I think I think this is going to work out really nicely. Really pleased with that. And Bradley, you obviously wrote the cover feature, which again is quite educational. How do you look at the debt that companies have? Yep. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's there's a lot of moving parts there. Again, you know, it, co- it covers buybacks, pensions, and. Lots of stuff there. We'll talk about that in a minute. And in fact, Algae, uh, he uh, ran something recently called the, which, which he's called the, the Cash Clinic, really looking at not necessarily the earnings of companies, which can be manipulated, but but the cash and the cash flows that, that sit behind a business and really underpin its underpin companies' ability to pay dividends. And what he did this week, uh, having done Marks and Spencers a few weeks ago, uh, was 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 screened for candidates to keep that series going. And, and again, you know, there, there'll be some insights there that you can use investors off off the bat. But really, it's again, it's an educational initiative designed to help you understand how to how to look at a company's cash flows. Okay, so loads there tons um and we'll talk about your feature in a minute as i said but let's start with the news because again a really quite kind of busy week on the news front yeah it's been very busy um it's quite a retail kind of focused news section this week there's so much going on i mean i guess one thing from seven days i'll start off with is a potential issue with our sort of um you know our divorce our ongoing divorce from the eu and there's a big story in the ft as well this week um 
So we've got 5,500 UK registered financial services companies who use um, passports or, or agreements that are known as passports to just trade in the single market you know, without any issue. But interestingly, there are actually more than 8,000 businesses in Europe who use the same agreements to trade with us. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting central um, balance of power in negotiating there because it's going to be troublesome for the UK if we lose those passports, but it will be for the EU too. So it's just potentially an interesting indicator of how negotiations might go that things you know there are pros and cons both ways basically to how britain does you know, remove itself from the european union absolutely but but i think you know some of the more hardline europeans euro crats uh, if you want to use that expression would argue that well they can simply move the financial centers the business that's being done in london to places in europe whether it be frankfurt yeah. or warsaw i've heard spoken about and we had Lloyds of London talking about that today, didn't we? Um, their CEO was talking about exploring whether they could set up, you know, an office somewhere within the European Union in order to, you know, mitigate that risk of the business continuity. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, uh, yeah, whether, obviously that's a cost of businesses, though. So it would be very, um, they'll probably not want to do that in an ideal world. They can and have that ability, as you say. But I guess it's just sort of an interesting thing that sort of struck me this week i I think it is very interesting one of the things that um nicole elliott who writes our trading coverage said to me was yes but john the thing that people forget about london is is it's where people want to live it's where the wives or husbands of 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 the guys who are working in these industries want to live and then you know i can i can kind of i kind of get that yeah frankfurt's a very boring place yeah (laughs) london definitely as kind of one of the world's great cities uh, obviously we're biased that cultural centre is a big part of it right but another mm. big part of it is the financial centre so that's what's really interesting to see what will happen here and I'm conscious that we will, Bradley and I both live in East London under the shadow of Canary Wharf um, and that's a, that's a big part of it too but yeah I think that's a really good point that you can't ignore you know the, the other draws of London apart from uh, business one of the world's great cities there you go. You sort of yeah, take yeah. it for granted when you come here every day, struggling on a train. And <laughs> Doesn't feel like it at that point. Don't get it? started on trains. Let's not talk about trains. <laughs> not stuff. one of the great tube networks. No. Oh, the tube oh, network's fine. Yeah, the tube yeah, network sorry. is good. It's the, the, the ones trains. that come in that are not so great. Anyway. anyway. What else you got, Bradley? Another thing which kind of piqued my interest as well is a couple of references to it really is share buybacks. So Microsoft, it raised its dividends by um, 8%, which sounds like quite a chunky amount. This is actually below what Morgan Stanley expected, though. They expected to rise at 10%. So no what, pleasing some people. Exactly. There, really. so, so what Microsoft has done to please those people is announce a buyback program up to $40 billion on top of its already existing $40 billion buyback program. And um, in the numbers section on seven days, Target, which is based in Minneapolis in the US, is a big retailer out there, they've launched a $5 billion share buyback. I think it's always useful to look at the US market and where it is and look at what could happen in the UK because this is quite late stage stuff with these massive buybacks. It sort of suggests that the earnings multiples are going to look much better for these companies. But the thing that's driving them is, a, well, it's not that long term. You, know, you can't go on buying your shares forever. And there's potentially a danger that this will lead to a lack of investment in these businesses, although they are very big and large businesses. And that potentially is, a, is an issue. And we are sort of starting to see a few more buybacks coming in the UK market. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with it. But it has to stop at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's not necessarily that these businesses will be starved of investment. It's that there isn't anywhere to invest within these businesses. There is there is nowhere to better use that money to to boost earnings. Well, hopefully by so. buying bank shares. Hopefully that's hopefully that is actually the case. But you do wonder whether someone has, you know, sort of 
entrepreneurial and iconic as Microsoft really cannot find better use for their money. Like, surely, I know they're they're probably asked and investing an awful lot of money. Well, I, I don't but, know if you I don't know if you saw the story this morning, but uh, on Microsoft, in fact, which have come out and said that Windows Ten is. Uh, basically a diabolical experience for well, users and having spent the last year fending off uh, an enforced upgrade uh, and, and i got i got through it did you yeah yeah, yeah. never never got upgraded that's stubbornness great yeah absolutely. <laughs> uh yeah have they got anywhere best to invest i mean who well given that just yes they do they need to improve their <laughs> invest, invest more in getting your operating system right but yes it's i have a i have a windows phone not a happy experience i had one past tense don't now yes it's not spending your money on buybacks microsoft and make my phone better there you go but is it better for investors just to give the other side the argument that they improve shareholder value rather than for these huge companies make some acquisition of a kind of new uh, company that they think is going to protect them in some market and we've seen huge write downs of some of these acquisitions haven't we from some of the big players and you wrote about unilever actually this week doing a couple of these much smaller acquisitions but i kind of wonder whether I think from the other side of the argument, you could say I'd rather there be a share buyback program than a misguided acquisition of the kind of in vogue company at the moment. Well, I, I kind of get that. And, you know, in the case of Unilever, I mean, the deal it did uh, was very small. Well, it's kind small, of greenwashing yeah. up liquid. Not a good example. It's yeah. not going to move the dial. No, no, I mean, it is a good example because it suggests that the acquisitions that are there to be done are not big enough to actually make a difference, yeah. really. Yeah. That's very much the theme of the moment that a lot of people are talking about. Is, you know, those big incumbent businesses who are trying to kind of protect themselves as their industries change. But yeah, they, these are very small acquisitions. Can they can be transformative? Well, yeah, I mean, you could argue buy a small business that does something like greenwashing up liquid and then invest in it over a number of years well, to exactly. actually move the whole market towards those kind of products. So, I mean, you know, there, there is a case to, to say, well, a small acquisition doesn't necessarily move the dial in the first instance, but over time it might if, you, if it's invested in properly. I guess, I mean, in Unilever's case, it's a bit more tangible and easier. Like, it, it's very sort of, it's very potentially not obvious, but it's um, a kind of major trend at the moment. People are becoming a bit more environmentally aware. So buying... A sort of ethical company does make sense with Microsoft. Obviously, it's potentially a bit more difficult because fads change all the time, and something that's looking like it's going to just absolutely fly yeah. all of a sudden becomes unpopular, especially or in the media landscape. By something else, something like look at what happened to Yahoo. You know, and yeah, the kind exactly. of businesses that had tum- was it Tumblr that it yeah. Bought? Um, you know, a, a vast Tumblr, price. What does that do? It's, I'm, I'm, it's I'm a, really micro, it's a blogging media. platform that oh, people right, thought okay. would get, which actually did get quite uh, popular, but then obviously other kind of blogging platforms and social media companies have massively gone past it. So they had to write down quite a lot of that acquisition and ultimately, as we know, the CEO stepped down. Mm. I guess this theme is quite relevant actually to one of our news stories this week, which is on Burberry. So for the first time, basically what Burberry has done is um, rather than showcase its next fashion line behind closed doors to only the, the great and the good, what it's done is stream live its latest catwalk show in London as part of the London Fashion Week. And as those clothes are you know, making their way down the catwalk, anyone can go and buy them online. And Burberry's shares have, over London Fashion Week, performed extremely well. And actually analysts think that this is going to be, yes, a short-term kicker now but could in the long term be a great strategy and it's it's an interesting maybe a similar example of you could argue maybe there hasn't been a lot of investment in this but it shows um you know management teams that have really tried to make sure they're delivering something that's going to make the business 
last and have longevity and be around for longer and be be relevant i think it's quite clever it's very clever the only thing i would see as a problem with it uh, would be that you need to kind of wait for at least a year to get a sense of how the the annual sales um, have performed because i suppose one thing it could just be doing is changing the seasonal you know bringing forward that seasonal sales so i'd be interested as to whether as it promotes engagement with uh, potential customers it is actually creating more sales rather than just earlier sales true no it'll be it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that transpires absolutely and you can read about it in the ic you can i think it's a good digital strategy bringing old world and new world together i think, yeah. that, I think that's quite clever but i guess burby have also benefited from uh, a bit from kind of tour- tourism spending so there is there is that um prospects too that um, people who watch the stock are considering that you know when uh, Burberry's obviously a very um, important fashion brand for the UK. People will travel, you know, to the UK. Well, people travel to shop, and if they're in the UK, they'll likely go to Burberry. And if you are holidaying in the UK from abroad, things are much cheaper. So there is a bit of an assumption that there has been a bit of a sterling kind of kick to their results. But it would seem that the sort of the ten percent rise over London Fashion Week is as much to do with the new strategy as as sterling's weakness. Yes. And maybe, maybe the new, and maybe the new management structure as well, which yeah, shareholders absolutely wanted yeah yeah indeed indeed that hadn't really worked out the uh no the previous experiments yeah the chief and being chief creative didn't work that well beyond the pages of our magazine burberry has absolutely no meaning in my life whatsoever so i'll take your word for it well i take harriet's word for it because (laughs) (laughs) like you i'm not a burberry disciple uh no i mean one retailer one retailer who i have bought stuff from who's not having such a great time is uh, majestic wine and this was a shocker of a profit they had a torrid time yesterday yeah the shares were down i think even by the end of the day down a quarter Uh, the big issue there really seems to be in commercial sales which are pretty important to the company so yes they have their own sort of retail estate where one can walk in and and buy the wines from them um but the commercial sales to to the things guess like hotels bars that kind of thing and maybe maybe even small shops and stuff corner shop chains or something have not been performing well at all and to compound those problems they've entered into um the u.s relatively recently their mail campaign there to trim up new business hasn't gone very well and yeah there are just a few sort of there are a few little problems that have culminated at the same time i've got to admit i haven't looked at this business for quite some time it used to be quite a straightforward operation you know it had it had shops they were warehousey in nature even though they're retailers you used to buy your wine by the crate and you know the more shops it opened the better it did and but since then so the chief executive i remember rightly that uh, changed so basically there was something yeah. a bit weird about that if well I, they if i remember at the time they bought naked wines and what ended up happening was that the chief executive of naked wines became the chief executive of the enlarged entity yes naked wines is more like an online uh wine yeah they're business. they're kind of their their shtick i suppose is that they deal with independent winemakers and they get wines made for them exclusively and right. then they sell those on to obviously the retail customer at competitive prices that that was their kind of um, a key part of what they were about and it had done very well hence the reason why majestic wanted to buy it but you suspect that the success of naked wines and the historic success of majestic means it's probably salvageable but there are a few things as i said culminating at the same time which make it quite difficult and i guess things like i mean majestic has tried to i remember recently or early this year they removed that sort of whole six bottle minimum thing they thought that would well they've gone down from 12 to six uh, previously so they've done things to kind of 
encourage the retail customer, but it seems now maybe they have to try and do something to encourage commercials. They, they got, I mean, it looks like they got their entrance to the US wrong with Naked Wines, right? They spent a lot on this marketing campaign. Well, I mean, that sounds like and, a terribly difficult thing to do. Yeah. To go into, I mean, many, many British businesses have tried to crack the US and, and apart treat from the, it with their tails between apart the Apart from the fat and lazy ones that don't try and export, according to Liam Fox on New International Trade. Yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure he was uh, too well received on that point. Uh, but, but no, I mean, no, going, I going into the US is very tough. Yeah, and I, I think definitely there's a risk of overreacting to this kind of news as well. They, they've tried something, the marketing, they've spent a lot of the marketing, that's going to hurt their um, profits in, in the short term. But, you know, maybe they'll try something else or, but, or maybe they really misunderstood that market in terms of whether they really want that. Easily done. I mean, yeah. the US is... It's not one market, is it? I mean, it's, you know, it's a huge place. There's lots of different regional markets there that, you know, I mean, you look at the US stock market, you know, we, we have a writer who occasionally contributes some ideas to our magazine and he comes, oh, you know, he looks at US small caps and some of those, some of, I've never heard of them. They're huge companies. Yeah. Huge companies. Um, you know, Nathan's Famous Restaurants. Ever heard of them? Massive, probably bigger than any restaurant chain in the UK. Um, but it's, it's a massive, massive conglomeration of lots of different regional markets. Very difficult to understand. And, and and this is my point about Majestic. From a simple business selling wine to UK customers, with a bit of a challenge from supermarkets and the ongoing supermarket price wars that had to be managed, it's now a little bit more difficult to understand. Yeah, the way they retail alcohol in the US is just different from the UK. I suppose you can assume it's similar. Yeah, and I guess the, the, the performance of Majestic, just lastly on it, is, is potentially interesting given that there's a, there's a bit in seven days as well about how alcohol sales in UK supermarkets have surged 8.5% in the past four weeks. So well, you know, now we're leaving the European Union, we have to drown our sorrows. Well, somehow. and we're cheering the our Olympic glory. Oh, and cheering as well, and Olympic glory. glory. And, uh... So, you know, the Brits are still drinking. <laughs> Nothing's changed there. The supermarkets are managing to get the, the booze off the shelves. Is, so. is it because they're selling it che- more cheaply? I mean, I guess the, the supermarkets have been doing is. better. So we had some results from Morrison this week. I mean, let's just jump ahead to that. I mean, they look all right. Yeah, they're And Tesco has some decent numbers, and the, the supermarket figures are looking okay. I mean, the, the, the discounters are still kind of winning a bit of market share, but everything looks a bit more level balanced than it than it than it has that's also because they're doing operational operational things that are improving cost cutting mm. but they haven't yet yeah, improved user experience uh, tried to improve their customer experience and those kind of things but yeah it doesn't seem quite as rough as it was no and also, I mean, Morrison's is still, I think, at the time we went to press anyway, according to SCA data, was still the second most shorted stock in the market. So, you know, I'm things sure will get... i not sure I always trust that data, but... Um, well, maybe not, but it's updated daily, apparently. Mm, but anyway, right. um, you know, the results from Morrison's is they were better, but there is still a bit of scepticism in the market. Yeah, we'll see. But as long as they keep flogging me cheap boots, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, John Lewis, we write about this week, was very unusual because it's not a listed company, but... Uh, Something noteworthy, presumably. Yeah, there, 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 there is rationale. Stuff. I haven't just gone completely mental. <laughs> um, the, basically, John Lewis is very much used or seen rather as a as a bellwether of how you know you, the UK is performing, the UK high street is performing, how retail is doing. And Harriet's done a really good job here of just kind of looking at the challenges that John Lewis is wrestling with, and basically saying that being aware of those as an investor in listed retailers is really important because what she's kind of really concluding and she's doing a bit more on this um as part of a, a wider sort of um, piece and i think podcast soon as well mm, i've been involved in this there you go being a former retail correspondent myself exactly so her, her, her point... showed up how out of date my knowledge was there you go <laughs> 
her point really is that it's you know that if any retailers are kind of suggesting Brexit as a pro- or the, the EU referendum result has caused a problem for them, it's potentially a bit misguided. And actually, what what is now key is how retailers manage their costs. That is the big key thing. You know, if they're sourcing. Um, pretty much products from especially the US or potentially Europe and they're not selling an equal amount then there's an issue there with the currency um obviously there's the national living wage which is creating wage inflation and so it is quite a tough sector to to deal in and um if you're selling more on the internet but you need to keep your store estate going that's a that's a cost and it's it's a yeah these are long long term trends basically we're just kind of saying don't let brexit be an allowable excuse and really be aware of the sort of drivers behind retail well, performance. I would, I would never let that be an allowable excuse in the page of the Investors Chronicle anyway. We, we had, had a, some results from Next this yeah. week. And, you know, Next, uh, in fact, we had a couple of retailers uh, reporting, Kingfisher as well, mm. uh, the DIY chain. But Next is interesting because Next is, you know, beyond John Lewis in a listed capacity, is probably the bellwether, along with Mark Spencer of the UK retail sector. And, you know, it's looking a bit tough there. And Next is not a company that makes mistakes no exactly and i think to uh, bradley's point next really bears out some of the things that he was talking about i suppose what it next can do possibly more than john lewis or that this is an arguable point is raise its prices which is one of the things i think about but the other side of um, protecting their margins they're looking to reduce their reduce their costs and um, reduce their production costs but obviously you can only do that to such an extent i was interested actually in the story they uh, talk about uh, moving their production to new territories such as bangladesh yeah, I thought but a lot we all... people use bangladesh already Primark. Yeah. Yeah, well, if we think back to that to, um, garment factory yeah, collapse yeah, yeah. in 2013, you know, there is um, a limit to which you can, and just to make clear, Next had no relation with that Primark factory. Uh, but yes, there were that. a number of European um, retailers uh, that, that had kind of their products being developed there. But there's a limit to how far you can push that in terms of reducing the cost of production. And there are risks to reducing the cost of production in that way. So, Well, you also had pressures from, from those local uh, producing markets, so Bangladesh and Vietnam, and in fact, in Vietnam, uh, around the same sort of time, there were massive protests about the working conditions and the wages that were, they were being paid there. So, so, so yes, there is a an opportunity to cut costs by shifting production to a different markets, but but at the same time, they are inflationary inflationary markets themselves so wages will rise there and that's why they're constantly moving to different markets the wonder of globalization not brilliant for workers in said countries but yeah and i suppose that's why it's not surprising that they are also thinking about or or you know one of the options is looking at the other side of things and increasing their prices and but on price deflation that's something that john lewis said was hurting them and growing competition in terms of online. So, you know, it's, it's not either, easy at either end when it comes to um, retail at the moment. Yeah, next share price looks pretty pretty nasty. I mean, you know, this is a, ha- this is a company that has a habit of uh, under-promising and over-delivering. And, That's true. And now it's under-promising and just about struggling to, 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 to meet those promises. Well, it has high costs. So we had French Connections results as well in this week's issue. Um, and if you look at the costs that they are running in terms of rent and growing staff costs, um, it's high. It's hard to, you know, say that that is a business that is still going to be making good money um, in the kind of medium term. So, so those costs are being borne outside of the UK or in, in the UK in or, the UK or everywhere? For French, for French Connection. But it, it, what um, Next has um, as, as a problem in particular that they've talked about is their buying costs have increased because right. they're buying stuff in, in dollars and then yep. they're selling uh, in, in pounds in the UK. So they don't get to kind of protect themselves um, when it comes to the currency translation. So, yeah, they're 
kind of multiple pressures. Um, so yeah, but as as you say, uh, Lord Wolfson um, has a knack of under under promising and over delivering. So it could just be further cautionary um, comment. They're going to get to a point where they're going to be very very much worth buying. Looking at that share price. Um, and at 12 times earnings, you've got to think they're almost there. Yeah. But uh, I'll be certainly be keeping an eye on that. I think, I think that is one great company. Definitely not one to write off. Definitely not one to write off, but it will be a risk if they start increasing their prices. Yeah, King, Kingfish, I mean, that's a, that's a different story. I mean, this is a company that was under-delivering under for, for quite a long time. And that share price is flying really yeah i mean pretty much i mean obviously the, the months aren't that on that on that share price chart but it looks like since the referendum it's just gone great guns um that's not just uh that maybe takes away from what management are doing um they did at the start of this year i believe or very back end of last year launch their sort of five-year transformation plan which is going to in their in their hopes anyway yield a 500 million pound uplift to annual profits above what they make now once it's complete that's a lot of money their half-year profits, are, that's about the level of their half-year profits this time. Exactly, yes, yeah, a lot of money. Um, but when you go through the plan, um, there are a lot of things that sort of quickly start to add up. So they're refining their kind of their their main kind of core B&Q range, whereas before they might have stocked, say, I don't know, seven types of sink or something, whereas now there'll only be three. I mean, that, that's a, not a specific example, but just to give listeners the idea of what they're doing, they're just stocking fewer types of each kind of item which reduces um, sourcing costs, distribution costs, lots of other things. Does it also, it, but doesn't it encourage people to go and say, well, they've only got three types of sink. I'm going to go and look around and see if I can find a nicer sink. Well, think about, think about as, a, as a big use of being, you think about paintbrushes, for example, you know, there will be multiple ranges of packs of paintbrushes now the average person redecorating their house doesn't really need there are although there are differences between good and bad paintbrushes I've never been able to work out the difference between a six pound paintbrush and a one pound paintbrush I'll tell you it's about the amount of bristles that come off when you're painting which is rather annoying to pick off but anyway let's not go down that route that's a 50p paintbrush (laughs) so I but I think that does make the point you know it's like okay you can have a premium range or brand in there but you know having multiple brands from the value upwards basically what what, when they launched the plan what they said they were what they they believed they had done anyway was got to a point where they were just offering too many types of different things. I, mean, yeah, I, th- I think okay, at the time they at the, at the time I think they used the example of light bulbs and the, it was a crazy amount of light bulbs they were selling when really a light bulb was just a very simple thing. You either want it to be energy efficient or you don't, or you want it to be a couple of brightnesses, but you don't need a choice of seven forty watt bulbs. You know, for instance. So, Speak for yourself, bro. Well, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so monochromatic in my bulb choice. Um, but it also reduces the amount of... Because one thing you don't think about is they have to display a lot of their items as well. So the more types of items they have, they have to display those, and they're not for resale. So I'll tell you what they have got. They've got more lighting than I've ever seen in my life in a B&Q store. Yeah, and not and, uh, anymore. <laughs> well, I think in this way, I'll venture to go so far as to say that... Sorry. I go so far as to say they're learning a bit from Screwfix, which has been doing really well. And Screwfix, if you go into one, it's the simplicity. You normally well, you would click, click and collect it, or you turn up. It's mainly a kind of a warehouse, just with a kind of retail front. This is a this is a subject that has come up on several occasions on this podcast uh, because because yeah, I won't go in B and Q anymore. 
Oh, really? Yeah. No, I'll just what? get a screw fix. Well, no, exactly. Yeah, and I I'll think get a screw fix and pay half the price. Yeah, and you don't have to stand in, in an interminable queue, you know, as I said in the company's email the other day, behind someone buying a massive pot plant or whatever <laughs> happens to be in queue and have a panic attack in a, in a long queue. But yeah, no, I think that screw fix in some ways is demonstrating to them, you know, this is how it's changing. So it makes perfect sense. And they're also doing some changes to the click and collect, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I mean, it's, it's, I mean screw fix is abs- the absolute sort of darling of the, of the whole surprised. company. It's performing extremely well. And um, John Bellweather, human. <laughs> <laughs> it is um it is doing very well but yeah there, there are other things as well so they offer a click and collect service for for b&q and of course that's that's uh, how screwfix does operate as well um there's improvements there which should help improve the um the operating margins within the uk division um and yeah you know, the french business is is kind of stabilizing there's nothing you know amazingly great in the performance but it's it, it's stable and that's the probably about all you can ask for in the French economy at the moment. But um, yeah, it's a big plan. They've got big aims for it. And the share price would maybe partly suggest that there's growing belief in it sort yeah. of working. Yeah, it's interesting. French chief exec as well, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember for Veronique my... Lowry, I think she's called. Yeah, that's right. I that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think it is. No, I remember my childhood holidays to France. I always remember massive supermarkets and loads of DIY shops. Multicolour pens. Monsieur Bricolage. <laughs> <laughs> Brico Depot. That's them. <laughs> but is that them? Um, no, Costa Armas then. Costa Arma, right. I think of those like pens that have the eraser on the other end. Yeah, yeah, those. That was a highlight of my summer holidays. <laughs> that was literally the, was the uh, Going to the m- mammoth and buying like all my stationery for the year ahead. <laughs> what a that one, is sad, isn't it? What a wonderful trip down memory lane. <laughs> anyway, right, so let's talk about your feature. So it's about debt. It is. And I, I, I must admit, you said, I've got this idea about good debt, bad debt. You know, what, when, should, when should companies carry lots of debt? What companies can get away with carrying lots of debt? When does debt become a problem? And that sounds good, Bradley. And then, and then the next thing I know about it was when I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. And I think you did a good job. There was a bit of um, a germination period, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> yep. But yeah, hopefully, um, you know, to, we'll also give listeners a brief overview of it now, and hopefully the readers will find it useful. So I've kind of broadly looked at some of the key metrics that fund managers really like to use um, to analyse debt. And I, I guess that. And you have spoken to quite a few fund managers. I have, yeah. And I guess that of... the context of doing this now is the fact that obviously we've just had the Bank of England enter the fray in terms of buying corporate bonds, um, interest rates at record lows it's potentially a very good time for companies to borrow more which in a way makes it almost puts a greater imperative on investors to make sure they know why the companies they invest in are borrowing what it's being used for uh, whether it's actually reducing the cost of debt perhaps or they're just refinancing so in a way it's becoming really important now to understand a a debt profile given the sort of macro um, environment we're we're, we're in at the moment yeah and and it's quite complicated so you know we we have a figure in our results tables gearing yeah um and gearing is essentially the ratio of debt to net assets um generally speaking 100 percent gearing would be basically the level of debt is the same as the level of assets in the company and and a lot of the time we'd look at a company with 100% gearing and say mm, that's uh better be watchful of this but then often we see companies with much greater gearing than that but it's fine and it seems to be the case for a long long time yeah exactly so i mean when you if you kind of look at the just a basic kind of net debt to sort of cash profits ratio which is favored quite a lot by fund managers it's not it's not worth looking at it in isolation because as you say um it could be a property company thereby have has assets that it can easily sell or assets especially at the moment if they're in london and um, other regions that are appreciating quite well in value so it, it depends on sort of what um 
assets they have that could be the sort of securitization for that debt. That's quite important. Um, and also the type of business that they are. I mean, uh, a lot of fund managers would argue that something like a utility company can have a lot of debt because it's... it's well, they don't know exactly how much they're exactly. going to be, be receiving for yeah, their customers they've for got a long, a near, long time. Not, not certainty of income, but they've got a pretty good idea. And, and also, not on that side of things, but sort of maybe some more, slightly more defensive retailers or consumer goods companies who rely on those regular, small, repeatable purchases where the business model is, is just selling things that we need, that we're not going to stop buying, like toothpaste or what have you, deodorant, those kinds of things. Well, you mentioned Unilever in the future. I don't know what their, what their level of debt is, actually. Uh, um, gearing perspective but yeah no i don't off the top of my head i do remember it. it's never been low no i mean it's a big they have a big chunky old debt pile yeah they do and and some would argue that's okay because of who they are and what they do they're, they're selling items that we regularly buy we don't think about it we're not going to stop buying them unless you know, things get really really bad yeah and a lot of their assets are intangible as well because the their brand assets yeah. so it's not like plant and machinery no in cases so in a way that's potentially an issue because obviously um if if things turn against them then they haven't got that whereas if a, 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 but it's right, unlikely that things are going to turn against it is them, very unlikely but um i guess what what some people would say is it's quite nice potentially if a company is in difficulty that it has things it can sell and help repair the balance sheet a bit obviously if it needs to sell it then it's maybe not going to get a good price yeah i think we should be long out of that so yeah yeah just just the the flexibility to be able to um you know sell things is can be good anyway in the right situation yeah uh so you you have done some some number crunching yep did you find anyone that we should be taking any uh paying any closer attention to yeah, I mean, I think actually AA is a really good example of a, a company that kind of doesn't really score very well on the metrics. It's got quite a high level of um, net debt to cash profit. It's not the highest out of the data that we got from S&P Capital IQ, but but pretty high. But potentially the most worrying thing is that its total debt to total assets as a ratio was 1.6, which um, is the highest of any of the companies that we had in the data set of companies above £100 million. So that's going to be like 160% gearing if we, yeah. uh, in, in, in the context of our results tables. Yeah, so it's you know it's got a sizable debt pile for the size of the company. And that's common, isn't it, in some ways for companies that come from a, have a private equity element of their history, yeah. right? It's their companies, like they're loaded with debt and they put it back onto the market. So it's not always, you know, don't invest in this company. It's, it's kind of how are they doing? And Saga was an, another one that uh, we reported on the results this week. How are they doing at reducing that net debt to cash profits ratio? And if they're doing it in, in a measured way, it doesn't mean you shouldn't invest in them. But no. it is still a risk. And that's why we put the leverage ratio there. It's a little bit crude. Uh, but it's a good way. And when we have one for banks too, which is slightly different. But um, yeah, we put it there just as a kind of rule of thumb. Yeah, exactly. It's just something to be mindful of. And as you say, actually, um, AA has been able to um, refinance some of its debt recently at, at a lower cost to it. So that is good. But it still does boast a very large debt pile off the size of the company. It's just something that you need to be aware of because on a sort of um, net debt to cash profits level, as I say, it's not sort of the highest. It, it would probably screen be considered high because it's, it's within the top 20 of all the companies that we got through the screen. But yeah, and it's there with companies that have you know a lot of debt as part of their you know business model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, I, so I look down this list, and you've got you've got property companies. Yeah, you would expect that they 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 borrow to to buy. Yeah, um, as you would when you were buying a house for yeah. your for your residential use. You've got the pub companies there that we know are probably still getting out of uh, over expansion. Yeah, of, uh, over. A, quite a long period it's taking them a very long time to get off of this list yeah but but again essentially they're they're the same as a property company they kind of are yeah i mean they um they will often 
well, there'll, there'll be a mixture of lease and ownership of, of buildings, yes, as you say, and some are, you know, some are even, um, I think his enterprise has um, a growing kind of commercial property arm as well, so. Yeah, the ones that I kind of, that jump out to me is a Shire. Mm. I mean, that's a farmer group. Yeah. Uh, but then their debt may be high because they've just bought a very large company. Yeah, that might have been. They are, they actually this week issued a, or were going to issue a very large bond as well. So that probably does. Um, a bond to presumably refinance their. To help their, fund their, the acquisition of um, Baxalta, yeah. Yeah. It's a bridging loan that they had. It's a bridging loan. Yeah, you, know, you never want one of them for too long. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if you bought a house with one of those, you'll know why John says that. In fact, in fact Shire, um, it's been a tip of ours. It's done extremely well. Yeah, it's done. It's tip done really well. week. Transformational acquisition. So there is an example of debt uh, being managed properly, um, and actually, you know, one thing that you mentioned here, this I've never seen before, uh, is what you talk about with Serco. Uh, yeah. So there's a company that, you know, it's had its fair share of troubles lately, and you know, you look back at that company, and these, so you have three very excellent graphs here, which show how it's managing, not just bringing down. It's it's overall indebtedness, but how it's actually managing the the peaks and troughs of indebtedness that it occurs within the year. So we see debt, and what you see in the magazine is at a period end, but that doesn't reflect changes in debt throughout the period. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and what this shows is that those changes can be quite large. Yeah. I mean, basically, um, debt can be sort of flattered by ensuring that as a business you collect as much as is owed to you from your customers. You run down your inventory and you delay paying creditors ahead of key reporting dates mm, so you kind of good. like <laughs> perhaps <laughs> so you kind of like um the, the phrase is kind of like dive for the line i suppose so you report this um this net debt level at, on this day because that's the day of your half or year end the next day you pay with your suppliers yeah, exactly yeah so then it changes and that's fine and to a degree that that's just you know there is a that will happen naturally in any company but it can be done to a level where it's more aggressive um and, and, and therefore when it's when it's done aggressive you're not really being given a true picture. Of no, the, you're, the you're reading a net debt figure that probably is higher throughout the rest of the year. Yeah. Which, and that is potentially a fine level, but without further disclosure, it's a bit of a warning sign. Um, so that's kind of those those charts. If you um, have got the magazine in front of you, they will sort of show you how Serco has been. Um, very much worked on its sort of intra-year cash management to make sure the net debt figure does not fluctuate so aggressively within the year and it gives investors a much better idea of actually how indebted the company is that's really good to know i've never seen it before done this way no, it was a great chart. And actually, I have to um, say sort of, uh, thank you to well, all the fund managers I spoke to, but especially uh, Harry Jack, who's an analyst over at Schroeder's, who flagged that example to yeah, me. Yeah, I'd love to see this for more companies, actually. Yeah, this was in this was in this was in Circo's annual report. It was. Yeah. No, good for the well, it looks good now. I bet they weren't well, publishing yeah. this three years ago. <laughs> Perhaps not. <laughs> but it it does show, you know, that they are making steps to improve this and it, it is sort of there's tangible evidence of it actually happening there, which is good. And some companies give the average debt over a period when they report, which average can debt, be yeah. can yeah. be really useful for the same reason. We, we don't really talk about that so much, though. Maybe we should. I mean, it, it's not always disclosed. I mean, um, yeah. in, you can't in, get it for the standardised across all companies. No, no. no. I mean, in, the, in that same box out, uh, I mentioned Mears as well, and they kind of um, they do disclose that average net debt over well uh, in the most recent results was a half year period. Um, they disclose their average net debt figure on top of the net debt figure because they're just vastly different because of working capital the way the business works so it's it, these things will happen but if there's extra disclosure with it it's not a problem if you're telling people then it's fine but some companies maybe aren't as clear and lucid um as they could be or maybe historically were not 
So, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and the other things you talk about in this feature, which we don't necessarily need to go into detail now, on are the relationship between debt and pension deficits. Yeah, of course, because often, often net debt doesn't look at things like pension deficits. It doesn't encompass it. It's a liability. Yeah. That's not included in the net debt figure. Exactly. Some, some of the retail lease lease obligations are not included. They will be in the future, but they they're will not be. now. Yeah. So, again, things like that are also very important. Just to be aware of, obviously, we've had Carclay recently, which is a small company and a a company of its size ordinarily saying it's reducing its dividends wouldn't you know cause too many ruffles but the reason behind its dividends cut i think it's still umming and ahhing but there's a potentially won't pay it in october is because of its high pension deficit so that is a so it's basically uh, got to divert the money from yeah can't borrow any more needs to divert the money from Exactly. Shareholder returns. Pension deficits are a, are a cash drag, so it's important that um, any company you're investing in, you understand the profile of that. So there you go. So we have this incredibly educational issue, as it kind of turned out, sort of planned, but also sort of by accident. Um, you know, so, that, so we have Algae's Cash Clinic. That obviously relates to, to this, this feature on debt, which obviously yeah, relates very much to the work we're doing with, uh, with SharePad uh, and Phil Oakley. So, yeah, no, fantastic. Thank you very much, Bradley. Um, so, I guess we're, we're almost out of time. We have covered uh, a lot of, uh, of ground here, including some of the results. Uh, Ian, were there any that, uh, that you noticed particularly this week in the, uh, hopefully, the final flurry of results season? Well, actually, I think the next magazine might just be uh, as long. Oh, no, <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> we, keep call- <laughs> we keep calling the end of the results season. And now, yeah, um, there's some smaller companies that we've, we've tipped, I think, kind of keep the party going in terms of results. <sighs> great. Uh, <laughs> They're great. <laughs> I just quick shout out for uh, Megan's piece on GSK. Oh yes, other big course, company yeah. news. The, yeah, that was week. a big story. Yeah, in fact, is. GSK is the subject of the next cash clinic. Oh great, big dividend payer. Interesting financial situation there. Yeah. We have written on it highly before. Complex. I think highly complex. Mr. Bearble has written on this before. And I think, you know, he's concluded there's a lot of financial engineering going on here. We've got to try and get behind that. Yeah, it's very difficult to look, especially if you look at the um, uh, statement of equity changes. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. I haven't had that pleasure recently. <laughs> so, so Megan's story, it's about the change of management there, which is very interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. We, we, we know all that we, I suppose what we don't know about Emma Wormsley is exactly her plans for the business. Uh, but what we do know is some of her background. It's interesting that she's been... Um, running the consumer healthcare range, which some uh, kind of fund managers have wanted uh, GSK to move away from. But this obviously looks very much like that's now going to stay, stay as a core part of the group. Um, so it's interesting strategically, the kind of, and, and Megan does a really good job of setting in context um, the appointment. Um, and also given the scandals that GSK has had in recent years, it's interesting having someone with a strong marketing background. Perhaps it's someone that was seen as being a good communicator that will be able to operate well when it comes to kind of communications and marketing and getting the message out there and presenting GSK in the best light. Mm, I think I think it's quite interesting. Um, you know, the consumer products business there, the kind of off-the-shelf drugs. And they still have Leucoside? They still have Leucoside? Sure. I don't know if We've they do. we picked out Sensodyne, Horlicks. Sensodyne, Panadol, Horlicks, stuff that you can buy off the shelf, stuff that has kind of medicinal properties but isn't high-end pharmaceutical stuff. I mean, it's a big part of their business and yeah, presumably very profitable as well. Yeah, and it's a quarter of all sales now. I think it's been growing as a proportion. Um, yeah. But, I mean, look at someone like Reckitt Benkisser, you know. I mean, they do similar off-the-shelf treatments. They've sold off their 
yeah, the, the medicine side of its business, which became Indivior, you know, the, uh, the opiate treatments. And some people see that as very short termist, as, you know, they're moving away from the higher risk, uh, more investment intensive areas that will bode them well over the next few decades towards things that they know in the shorter term will sell and provide good profitability. Yeah, no is that it, what they should do? No one's going to stop buying Sensodyne or Panadol or Horlix or, you know, but, but, but you might invest a huge amount of money in a cancer drug that doesn't work. And exactly. so, so, you know, I, I do wonder whether this is GSK saying we want to go down a consumer, more consumer products route, a safer route. You know, we don't care about generics. We don't necessarily think that investing in big drugs is where, where our future is. Could exactly be. Exactly right, exactly right. Unless the new government incentivizes it, I suppose. Yeah. I, I, talk I, of. It is fascinating. It is fascinating. Whereas I think Astra's gone, you know, very much. It's bet, it's bet the farm on we're going to develop some big treatments. Yeah, it's got a big pipeline compared to GSK. And mm. also, as Megan points out, with this growing political debate around the price of drugs, you know, in the, in the US... Um, with um, the, the $10,000 tube of spot cream, is it? <laughs> yeah. Exactly right. You, it, it might... A more diversified business model that includes more consumer staples and, and less um, completely sensitive products um, might be sensible. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Okay, I think we are running out of time, and yet there's so much more to discuss in the magazine. So we have a sector focus uh, from Emma Powell on subprime lenders who still seem to be doing quite well. Yeah, they've, they've, they've kind of come back. Low, low interest rate environment is obviously helping them. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of consolidation going on in that sector. We've had non-standard finance joining the, the fray. And another uh, one, Morse. Yeah, Morse's club. Never heard of them. But yeah. So, yeah, learn that, something new every week. Yeah, you could say, look, are we just at the, have we had a lengthened credit cycle as a result of, um, you know, lower for longer interest rates? Is, is it now the worst time to get into these companies because you think it's all about to go wrong? Uh, potentially, but at the same time, monetary policy it has been soft and the consumer demand for credit is, continues to be high. So, you know, for the short term, at least, they look to be set fair. Indeed. And in fact, I saw the uh, IHS Market Household Finance Index this week, which suggested that after the Brexit wobble, Pretty much everybody is kind of fairly sanguine about their financial health and, and prospects for the future. Lots in the personal finance and fun section, including uh, an excellent big theme uh, by Kate Bealey on uh, biotech, which is interesting in the context of what we just said about GSK. And I think she's recorded a podcast uh, on that subject as well. And it's actually what we're going to be looking at again in next week's cover feature. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a massive, massive area. All the usual tips, comments, more results. Uh, than we've had time to mention today and actually more news as well than we've had time to mention today. So anyway, thank you very much, Bradley. And thank you, Ian. It's good to be back. Pick up the magazine, Debt Health Check, uh, £4.70, all good news agents, or get on the website and subscribe. And we'll be back again next week. Thank you very much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 